Ah, good morning, church. It's good to see you all this fine day. I was telling the first service that it's been a challenge the last couple days. My eyes are itchy. My My nose is runny. My throat is scratchy. And people are like, oh, no, you got coronavirus. It's like, no, because I drive around town, and especially outside the window of my office, I look, and the trees are in bloom, and they're my nemesis this time of year. And so I've been in a bad mood all morning because I'm scratching my eyes and all that kind of stuff. So if you uh, know the pain I'm going through because you also suffer from allergies, let's be good to one another and pray for each other. And I'll remind you to do your nasal spray, and you remind me, <laughs> and, uh, and all that kind of good stuff. So um, when you came in, you had opportunity to, to scan the little QR code, and, and when you do that, you, you have our bulletin, announcements, you have sermon outline, you can even give online, and you can submit prayer requests, all that kind of good stuff. You didn't know about that, now you do. Uh, every time you come in, you have the opportunity to do that, um, and there's a, a whole host of announcements. But two things I want to let you know about uh, today, just by way of reminder. Number one is this evening we're going to have a time of prayer, uh, 6.30 in room 129.130, which is you just come in and, and make your way over here, and it will go ahead and, uh, and we'll begin at about 6.30 and, and we'll um, begin to pray for the church, pray for the community, pray for the world and all kinds of stuff. So we hope that you would come for that. Uh, second thing is this, um, for those of you who have wondered or you've asked or maybe you haven't, you're just curious, uh, those of you who are contributors, I want to let you know that your contribution statement for 2021 is available online for cost-saving measures. We have done this. Uh, we make it available online at goldenhills.org. There's a little tab that says giving, and if you click on that tab, there's a link there that will take you to a login uh, prompt where you can access your 2021 contribution statement. Like I said, it's a it's a great, um, it's a cost save, great cost-saving measure to not mail them all out. We save thousands of dollars. However, if you do want it mailed out, please contact Diana Lozano at the church, and, and she'll be able to do that for you. Uh, Hosea, that's what we're going to continue to do. Um, so I want to invite you to open up to the book of Hosea in chapter 4, and we're going to continue on uh, through chapter 4 and also into chapter 5. And if you're new to our church, I do want to welcome you. We're, we've been in a series through the book of Hosea since uh, the end of January, and we're going to continue to be in Hosea up until Palm Sunday, which is in, a- in April. And uh, so you haven't, I don't know, you haven't missed a lot of Hosea, but you have missed a good, good amount. So I encourage you to go back and listen to the other sermons. We have a study guide available that you can download, PDF and whatnot. So let me give you a fair warning. Uh, This text is long. There's a lot of verses. It starts in chapter 4, verse 7, and we're going to work all the way through chapter 5. And because there's a lot of verses here in this particular section, I'm not going to read it all from the get-go. We're going to break it off into chunks. So I'll read a portion, uh, that little specific section, then I'll say a few things about it, and then we'll continue on to the next portion, say some things, next portion, and on and on. But I have broken it up into three uh, bite-sized pieces So chapter 4, verses 7 through the end of the chapter, verse 19, will be one section. And there we're going to be looking at how a spirit of sin and its shameful end comes to the people of God. The second section will begin in chapter 5 and just run through all the way to verse 14. That is going to show us how the covenant curses that God promised in Deuteronomy 28 are coming upon his people. And it's going to be a heavy sermon. I'm just going to give you a heads up. 
uh, it's going to feel weighty. Uh, God is going to reveal his judgment upon sin, and you're going to feel it. I pray you feel it. But then there's hope. There's one verse, verse 15 of chapter 5, where you're like, yes. And we'll end there with looking at how Christ is the one who makes it possible for us to escape the covenant curses that are coming. So let's begin in verse 7. If you recall from last week, we saw how God was bringing his people into his courtroom, so to speak. He is the holy judge who has given a law, and his people are expected to obey it. However, they have broken the law, both in the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. So he brings them into the courtroom, and he is providing evidence of their guilt. And what he's going to do throughout chapter 4 and 5, he's going to review some of those lines of evidences. He will give his verdict as the judge, and then he will pronounce his sentencing of his people. So as long as you uh, kind of have that in mind, we're going to begin in verse, verses 7 through 10. And in this section, we see how sin is present in his people. And um, it starts to not look good for the people. Verse 7. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me, says the Lord. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord. We'll stop there. When we look at verse 7, what we see is that the more they increased, and the they there is obscure because it probably means both the priests and the people. So in other words, the more that the population of Israel grew, you can see what happens, the more sin grew. And because every human being is born into sin and they have a sin nature, it only makes sense that the more sin nature having people exist on planet Earth, the more sin you're going to see. And in fact, that's exactly what's happening. And God gives us a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to them. He's going to change their glory into shame. These people glory and they praise, they prize, and they celebrate what is shameful. And so God's saying, okay, since you glorify and you enjoy all these shameful things, I'm going to bring a swift end to your glorying and your shame, and I'm just going to make you be shamed. What it shows us as well is that the sin is just wreaking havoc. The more people there are, the more sin is there. The boundaries of sin are being broken everywhere. It's out of control. And then he goes into verse 8 and gives us a quick example of one of the sins that is so prevalent. He says this, they feed on the sin of my people. This time we see that they is in reference to the priests. So the priests feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. These priests, they are so greedy that they are capitalizing on the sin and the sin offerings of the people. And if you look in your Bibles, you can see that it says they feed on the sin. And if you have a different version, it may say sin offering. And that's exactly what is in reference here is this concept of a sin offering. You see, when the people sinned, according to the law, they had to come and they had to bring an offering in order to be forgiven of that sin. And they had to keep bringing it over and over and over. 
Every time they sinned, they had to bring a sin offering, and the priest would be the one to sacrifice the animal as a sin offering. And when they sacrificed this, the animal as a sin offering, they were permitted, according to the law, to be able to take some of the food and eat it. That was part of their daily portion of food. And so we see in something like Leviticus 6, the priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. Verse 29, every male among the priests may eat of it. And so if you think about it, and walk with me through this, you have these priests who understand that their daily portion of food is in some measure dependent on somebody else's sin offering, which if you make the ultimate connection, you would say the priests are ensured that they have food to eat day by day because the people sin. Now, let me put it this way for you. If your daily provision for food came primarily as a result of other people's sins, then you might be tempted to make sure that they kept on sinning so that you can keep on eating, right? And if you think about it, that's actually something which is so prevalent in many religions of this world, but in particular in what is called the, the prosperity gospel, the false gospel found in many churches, especially in America, but now taking root in many other places. Let me give you an example. There's a false preacher who stands before his people, and he begins to develop a codependency relationship with his people, his followers. He preaches to them that they can have victory in Jesus' name, but he tells them how they can have this harvest of victory, and that is by sowing seeds of blessing. And usually the sowing seeds of blessing is speaking into existence what you want. I want a Corvette. But simultaneously, you need to make sure that your seed that you are sowing of blessing has a financial element to it as well. And so the preacher preaches, you can have a harvest of victory so long as you sow financial seeds of blessing and you claim it as your own. However, here's the, the problem. God doesn't usually answer that prayer. And so what ends up happening is this desire for the victory which can be material wealth or psychological wellness or some sort of therapeutic sense of, you know, good feelings and vibes about yourself, or it could be financial prosperity, whatever. When that doesn't come, the preacher who has manipulated his people can simply say this, it ain't my fault that you ain't getting the victory. You're the one that lacks the faith. You're the one that didn't sow a big enough seed. I'm preaching to you, have faith. I'm preaching to you, sow the seed. That's on you. If you don't get it, something's wrong with you. And so they look at their preacher who's wearing a $1,000 suit, $1,000 shoes, driving a $100,000 car or more, living in a 15,000-square-foot mansion, owning two private jets, and they go, well, he figured it out. So if he figured it out and he's telling me how to get it, then in the people's greed, they keep sowing seeds and in the preacher's greed, he keeps telling them, keep sowing seeds, and they're mutually dependent. So the sin of greed of the people who want the victory of all the, the wellness and, and health and prosperity is fueling the greed of the preachers 
who want the luxury jets and fancy cars. Are you tracking with me, church? Do you see that? And so in verse 9, you have something which I think every false teacher should read and people in their church should know about. It shall be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. If someone gets their livelihood on the backs of sin, uh, manipulated upon people, like, for instance, in our culture today, predatory lending habits, um, pornography, um, human trafficking kinds of things, we have to make sure we understand nobody is going to get away with that. Those kinds of gross injustices where we use people as objects and take advantage of them for our own selfish gain, God will punish you for that. Everyone who practices that kind of stuff will be punished according to their deeds. Now, what is shocking about this is the root of this kind of behavior is found in verse 10, and it's the main reason why Israel is going to be punished in the first place. Look at this in verse 10. They shall eat, so these priests are going to eat, or these false preachers are going to get theirs, and the people are going to get theirs, but you know what? It won't satisfy. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. That is, there will be lots of sexual activity, but no procreation. And why will this all come upon the people? It's because they have forsaken the Lord. So the main reason Israel will be punished is because they have forsaken the Lord. Now, this is shocking that the nation of Israel has forsaken their Lord. That is shocking. And one of the reasons why it's so shocking is because just a few generations before this time, there was a whole gathering of people who were saying, that'll never happen to us. Let me show you. Joshua 24, this is the end of the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is all about how the people come into the promised land and take possession of the land that God had promised. And so at the end of the book of Joshua, the people have already committed all kinds of um, idolatry and whatnot, and they're standing before Joshua, their leader, and Joshua being the, um, the one who follows in the footsteps of Moses, he's leading the people and he speaks to the people. He says, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. That is truth and integrity. He says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in, and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And most of you have that as a plaque in your house. Now, before I continue on, I want to say something which you probably, you, you'll feel the sting of this, but we have, to, we have to put ourselves in the place of the Israelites. At this point, Joshua is like, hey, I'm going to serve the Lord, and you guys have to choose for yourselves what you're about to do. And the people are standing before Joshua, knowing what the Lord has done for them, and of course, they go, what? Verse 16, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. Are you kidding me? It is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. 
who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also were served the Lord, for he's our God. In other words, bro, you serious? You're going to serve the Lord, you and your house? What? And we're not? Of course we are. We love the Lord. And so everyone puts plaques in their house. We all serve the Lord. But there's going to be a warning for us today from the example of Joshua in his day. Joshua says to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's holy. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and, you're, and you serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. In other words, they're saying, look, you, you, you think you can serve the Lord wholeheartedly, but I want you to understand God is a holy God. He doesn't want 94% of you. He wants 100% because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a total kind of something. It's, it's all or nothing. And you actually think you can serve the Lord wholeheartedly? God's a jealous God. God's not going to let you get away with idolatry, so you better wake up. And they're like, no, the plaque on the wall stands. We serve the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, okay, your witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, yeah, we're witnesses. I mean, look at the plaque on the wall. This house, we serve the Lord. And so he said, well, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. Uh oh Remember, God said, I want 100% of you. And they're like, he's got it. I serve the Lord. But as for me and my household, we serve the Lord. There's the, the plaque on the wall. Well, if that's true, then verse 23, then you need to put away the gods that are in your house. Here you are saying that you're 100% sold out for the Lord, and yet you have foreign gods living among you still. Not quite 100%, is it? You see, they're so blinded to their idolatry that here they are with their mouth proclaiming that they're 100% sold out for the Lord, and yet in their heart they're still treasuring certain idols. And brothers and sisters, that would be good for us to just pause, especially those who may have these plaques in our house, just to make sure that the plaque behind us that says, for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, is not, is not contradicted by the fact that we sit around the dinner table and talk about everything but the Lord, or that we serve our money, or we serve our power, or we serve our prestige, or we serve our academics, or our athletics, or we serve fame, or we serve all the rest. We have to make sure, brothers and sisters, that truly our house, we truly serve the Lord. There's no rivals. And there's not many of us who can honestly say, yes, I have no rivals. And so what Joshua says is you need to incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, will, we will serve. His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. Okay. You've decided that you're going to serve the Lord. Okay. But this is what is so shocking about verse 10 is the people have forsaken the Lord. How? They have begun to cherish 
whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. They turn their back on the Lord, and they turn their face towards getting down, getting dirty, partying, getting drunk, debauchery, and all kinds of disgusting behaviors. And not only that, but verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood, and their, and their walking staff gives them oracles. Can you imagine that? You're just walking with a stick, and you lay it on the ground, and you bow down and worship it, and you're like, tell me my future. And we can laugh at that, and yet some people still will turn to the horoscopes in their newspaper and on their phones. Is that any different? It's not different. And what's happened is you continue on in verse 12, a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. All right. Let me say something which is obvious. That word whore is uncomfortable. Parents are like, yeah, bro, can you stop with that? (laughs) Here's why I'm not shying away from that term or its meaning. We need to feel the sinfulness of sin. And when you have a word like whoredom or whore that describes sin, it makes you feel uncomfortable and awkward, and it makes you feel like, eh, I shouldn't, I don't want to. And that's how you should feel about sin. And so let's leave it there. Whoredom is all about spiritual adultery. It's about idolatry. It's about having your affections and allowing your body to follow suit in worshiping all kinds of things that are not God. And so these people who are now consulting their walking stick and getting drunk and playing the whore, literally and spiritually, they are being led by the spirit of whoredom, that is a spirit of sin. They have left their God to act in this way. That's why it's so shocking what we read. Here they were just a a few generations later after the whole nation got together and said, we'll never abandon the Lord. We're always going to serve the Lord. In this house, we serve the Lord. Next thing you know, whoredom. How'd that happen? How did we get here? And brothers and sisters, we should feel in our hearts how we ought to feel as we read this text, which is we should be embarrassed for them. And if we're guilty as they are, we should feel embarrassed for ourselves. We've committed this kind of treason and whoredom. Hear the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 2 says. This is how shocking this is what has happened. O house of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel, says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? What God does in Jeremiah 2 is he wants to ask this question, wait a minute, you abandoned me, is it because you found me unworthy? Are you suggesting that when I rescued out you out of the land of Egypt, verse 6, and I brought you out into the wilderness and I provided for you every step of the way. And when I brought you into a land flowing with milk and honey and plentiful good things, 
You came into this land and I was there with you. In light of all that, how exactly did I mistreat you in all that? How have I treated you poorly in all of these blessings and glorious graces? And yet you came into the land, God says at the end of verse 7, and you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. In fact, the priests do not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law, they don't know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. We'll serve the Lord. We'll never turn. And here you are. You don't even know how to handle the word. You don't even know how to find the Lord. You're going after things that don't profit. And so I contend with you. And with your children's children, I will contend. And then he goes on to talk about this just absurd thing. Just examine yourselves. Has there ever been such a thing? Has a nation changed its gods even though there are no other gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Their glory was me, God says. I blessed them and I gave them all that they needed. I gave them safety and comfort and everything they needed for life. And they've abandoned that glorious arrangement and sought out unprofitable and worthless alternatives. So be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord, because my people have done two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and secondly, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, God is saying, I am the fountain of living water. I am the one from whom the rivers of gladness extend to the peoples who drink of my presence and are overflowing with joy and satisfaction. And the people said, nah. Instead, we're going to do our own thing. And so they get together and they make broken cisterns, which is they try to have their own satisfaction through their own efforts and works and creativity, and they're not satisfied, and there's no joy, and it's just shocking. The equivalent would be something like this. You receive a $100 gift card, let's say 200 to something like Ruth's Chris Steakhouse or something like that. And you're like, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sin tonight. I'm going to glut myself. I just know it, and it's going to be great. But then all of a sudden, you realize, wait a minute. There's a new hamburger that uh, McDonald's came out with, and it's not real meat. It's a plant burger. And so you exchange your $200 Roots Chris Steakhouse for a $5 coupon for whatever is called the nasty burger at McDonald's. And all of us, our response to that is exactly as it should be. What? You're crazy. And yet many people, maybe us in this room, when we hear of or we ourselves choose to forsake God for lesser worthless things, we're not shocked. We're like, oh, that makes sense. 
I will choose likes and shares on social media more than God's affections for me in Jesus Christ. What? What are you doing? I will choose power in this world, prestige in this world. I will go to a great college, get a great job, and have a great car and vacation in great places and make myself great and everyone jealous. What? You're going to get old and tired and weak, and when you die, you can't take none of that stuff with you. What? And so God gives a warning in verse, and by the way, verse 13 and 14, I'm, I'm going to just let you know there's a bunch of nasty stuff that these folks are doing, uh, lots of nudity and sexuality that is happening on top of mountains, all in the name of worshiping their gods. Um, not much different than what we see in our world today with the sexual revolution and all that kind of stuff. It's not much different. Verse 15 So Hosea is going to give a warning to Judah and Israel that they're going to be handed over to their shame. He says, Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. In other words, all right, Israel, you're you're so messed up. The northern kingdom, I want you to understand that you're almost a lost cause, but the southern kingdom, Judah, you need to pay attention. Look at what they're doing and make sure you don't fall into the same kinds of sin, which is a great thing for you who are younger in this room, middle school students, like high school students, college students. You probably are surrounded by people older than you who have done stupider things than you. So far. And I'm encouraging you, please listen to your parents and grandparents because they're probably telling you the good things you should do and you should avoid the bad things because they probably wish they would have done the good things because they know acutely all the bad things that they did do that they shouldn't have done. And so the only fool is the young person who thinks that at 15 they're grown and they already know. You don't. I remember telling my parents at 15 and 17, like, I know what's up with the world. And then when I was 25, I was like, I don't know anything. <laughs> Help me. It was the craziest thing. What happened in 10 years? Like, just, everything just tanked. And so, please, young folk, I'm telling you, we older people, though we don't share with you our foibles and mistakes and sins as readily as we probably should, we have made grave mistakes for which we are incredibly ashamed and one of the reasons why we want to coach you and help you to not do that is we want you to not have to battle with that shame that we had to battle with so pay attention don't become guilty like us enter not into Gilgal verse 15 nor up to Beth Avon and swear not as the Lord lives what that means is don't go into the north country and begin to act like them because they're a lost cause. Beth Avon is a play on words right here because where the people worshiped was in a town called Bethel. And Bethel means the house of God. Now it's been changed to Beth Avon, which means the house of wickedness. In other words, you see these people, what they're doing? Yeah, don't do that. 
And what was amazing about where they were worshiping is they were in a place called Tel Dan, next to Bethel, next to a, a mountain called Mount Tabor. And there they had this big, giant altar on which they stuck this golden calf. And you can read about that at the end of the book of Judges. And the people would get together and they believed that this golden calf was Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they would worship it and they would bow down to it. And for those of us who went to Israel in 2019 who are gonna, and some of us who are going to go in 2022 in November, we're going to go to Tel Dan and we're going to stand in the shadow of Mount Tabor and you're going to sit on these steps and you're going to look out and see because of the excavations and the archaeologists have found the very altar where this golden calf stood and the people came and they falsely worshipped it. And you read the story and I'm telling you, it's like chills up your back. Like, oh. And so what God says in verse 16, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. In other words, they've become what they worship. That is a cow that can't move. <laughs> so can the Lord now feed them? How, how, God's like, how, how am I going to lead you into broad pastures where I'm going to feed you if you will not relinquish your false worship of the golden calf? How can I do that? And then we see in verse 17, Ephraim, which is the northern kingdom, that's what it's also known as because that's its largest tribe, has joined itself to idols. And God says, leave them alone. Don't go there. Don't imitate them. Leave them alone. They have so loved their idolatry that it's indistinguishable that they are my people any longer. They're false worshipers. I don't know them. They don't know me. So stay away from them. And then in verse 18 and 19, when their drink is gone, because remember the drink in verse 11, that's what they committed themselves to, wine and new wine. Uh, in modern day culture, you can call it drugs and pills and all that kind of stuff. When that's gone, what do they do? They give themselves over to whoring, literally more debauchery and partying and using their bodies in horrible ways. And why? It's because their rulers dearly love their shame. I love it. I love it. The leaders are like, I love getting drunk and acting a fool. I love it. All the debauchery and the sex with whomever, whenever, however, wherever. You see, a wind, verse 19, has wrapped them in its wings. The word wind there is the same Hebrew word for spirit, and it ties back to verse 12, the spirit of whoredom or the spirit of sin. The spirit of sin has wrapped them in its wings, which is the idea of comfort and protection. <sighs> Having a hard day at work? Come home. There's a bottle of wine for you. There's a six-pack of beer. We went to the local marijuana dispensary. In just a few short minutes, maybe an hour or so, it can all go away. Come here. I'll protect you. I'll make it all better. And if that doesn't work, then you know what? 
There's always, with the click of a button, another outlet, maybe pornography. Oh, or there's other things you can do, this and that. But I will protect you. It'll all go away. Until you wake up in the morning and you realize it didn't go away. They shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. In other words, they, should be, they will be ashamed because of all their sin. You see, a spirit of sin has overtaken them. It's the spirit of sin that tells them God is not delightful, God is not wanted, God will not help you. But sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that will do it. And a spirit of sin has led them astray where they have left their God to go and sin. You know, the New Testament talks exactly about these things. The Apostle Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Look at this. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's a spirit of sin or spiritual adultery that has overtaken the people and has led them away from God into a life of debauchery and shame. And any of us, myself included, who have chosen shameful behavior, you know exactly what it's like to wake up in the morning and to have that insane feeling of embarrassment and guilt and what have I done way of thinking. You know it. And so we understand what God is going to do here. He's going to let them experience the consequences of their sin. He's going to hand them over, as Romans 1 says, verse 28 since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gives them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Okay? You don't want God? All right. Here you go. I'll hand you over to it. And what's amazing about this is people think, yes, God's finally given me what I want. And then once they get what they want, they realize, I, I didn't want this. Because there's no life in lifeless idols. And that brings us to chapter 5. By the way, do you feel that? Do you feel kind of the intensity of this? It feels not comfortable. And that's where God comes in, and now he's going to give the covenant curses as his verdict. And he's going to sentence his people to his discipline. Verses 1 and 2. Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. And I, but I will discipline all of them. In other words, listen up, everyone. From the highest to the lowest in society, those who have abandoned me, they have gone into a deep slaughter. There's lots of bloodshed in the land. And I want you to know the verdict is in you're guilty. And now it's time for the sentencing. And the sentence that God gives is at the end of that verse too. I'm going to discipline you. 
And of course you're thinking, what does that mean? To be disciplined by the Lord. And so we jump into section three and four, where God knows Ephraim, but is not known by them. Verse three, I know Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. If you notice, this, this section begins and ends with knowledge. God knows them, but they don't know him. And this is important for us to remember because all of us are going to experience, I think, a dose of reality when we stand at our, after we die, we stand before Christ and we'll have to be judged. And something like this will come to our mind, perhaps, that no creature is hidden in it from his sight. But we all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. Every single one of us will have to give an account of every little thing that we do. We'll have to give an account of every careless word that has come out of our mouth, of every thought we've had, of every feeling we've enjoyed. We're going to have to give an account of what we do. And for many of us, that sounds terrible. Oh, no. Now, the reason why God is going to unleash all of these curses is because he is covenanted with his people. You saw it renewed in Joshua, but it all began with Moses. Moses enacts a covenant with Israel, and uh, you know it as the Ten Commandments, but it's more than that. And then what God does in Deuteronomy 28, I don't have time to read it, but I, want you, I encourage you to read it on your own. The first little section, the first 15 verses or so, are all about the blessings God will give to his people if they maintain the covenant. And then from verses 16 through the end of the chapter, verse 68, which is a lot of verses, the rest of it is all about the curses they could expect if they break the covenant. And so what I'm going to do is just give you the header. And this is, you'll see what I mean in a second. Where God says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now, you and I should ask, what are the curses that God has? They're everything from verse 16 to 68. It's a lot. And so I encourage you to read it because we, if you do, what will end up happening is you'll start to recognize, oh, that's why the people of Israel experienced this, 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 and this, because it's a covenant curse. But you see the people, I want to highlight verse 6 as it leads in. Uh, I want to highlight verse 4, sorry. Their deeds, Israel, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. In other words, their behavior is so bad that God is saying, no, 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 you can't come here. You can't come into my presence anymore. And why is it that their deeds are so bad and God says you can't come back here anymore? It's because the spirit of sin is within them. And the spirit of sin within them makes them not know the Lord. Now what's important for us to understand in verse 4 is the indicator here is that the spirit of sin 
is kind of a block or a barrier to understanding and knowing God. Well, why is that? Here's why. Paul gives us clear teaching on this, which is important for us to understand. Who knows the thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in them? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we Christians, we have received not the spirit of the world, that is the spirit of whoredom, but we have received the spirit who is from God. For what purpose? So that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You see, the natural person, that is the person who has the spirit of whoredom within them, the spirit of sin within them, they do not accept the things of the spirit of God because they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you see Paul's argument here? There are two kinds of people. There are the people who have the spirit of the world or the spirit of sin or the spirit of whoredom or they're a natural person. And then there's these other group of people who are the people who have the spirit of God within them. Now, those who have the spirit of the world or sin within them, they don't understand the things of God, and they think everything about God is just crazy and foolish. That's because they are natural and not spiritual, and they don't know. But those who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them are now supernatural people in the sense that they are spiritually renewed, and they understand the deep things of God. And so the question before us is, we have to be honest Verse 4 says the deeds don't permit people to come into the presence of God because they have a spirit of sin within them. In other words, the spirit of sin causes us to live out sinful behavior. The spirit of God causes us to live out God-pleasing behaviors. So which is you? What kind of spirit indwells you? And the evidence will often be, and most tellingly will be, the deeds, how you live your life. Now, Paul prays for knowledge all the time. And the reason why he prays for knowledge all the time is because it's something that we can grow in. It's something that by knowing God truly, we can live obediently to God in a life-pleasing, in a, in a God-pleasing way. Look at Paul's prayer, and I would encourage you to pray like this as often as you can. Paul says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Why should we pray for a filling of knowledge of God's will and be able to spiritually have wisdom and understanding so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God? We need to continue to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with all spiritual wisdom and knowledge, so that we can please God with how we live. And when we please God with how we live, we are bearing fruit. And the bearing fruit in pleasing God with how we live also will help us increase in the knowledge of God. So it's circular like this. The more you know God and what he demands of you, the more you will go, okay, I will obey. 
And the more you obey and bear fruit in, in keeping with obedience, the more that you will, oh, you will experience more knowledge of God and you will understand God in a fresh and new way. And that will drive you to want to know him better and deeper and more fully, which will drive you then to more obedience, which will drive you back to God. Do you see it? And so as it circulates like that, it's important for all of us to make sure that we are not being ineffective and unfruitful with what we do know about God. Here's how Peter put it. God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything you need, brothers and sisters, to please God is granted to you through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Which means if you are deficient in the knowledge of God, you will be deficient in obedience to God. And if you are deficient in obedience to God, it's going to affect your knowledge of God. And the deficiency of knowledge of God, well, we see how it works. So what do we do about it? You see, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, you can become partakers of the divine nature. One of the things of obedience is amazing is you get to experience God himself more. Especially when you escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That is the sin nature, sin of whoredom. And so for this very reason, here it is. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Because if these qualities, everything I just mentioned, if they're yours and you are increasing in them, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There may be some of us in this room who know true things of God, but our knowledge of God is ineffective and unfruitful because we are not making every effort to grow and to increase. We have just thought, well, I prayed a sinner's prayer. I'm kind of in the door. I got my ticket out of hell. I'm kind of good to go. Now I'll just passively sit back and just kind of do whatever and in the end, I'll get to heaven anyway, so what's the deal? No. Every effort, grow, increase, work. Not in order to achieve salvation, but in order to work out your salvation. God's judgment for his people, as we've already seen, is coming. The covenant curses are coming. He is sentencing his people in verse 2 to discipline. And now we see verse 5 and 7. God is going to discipline his people. He's going to judge them in two ways. One of them is a passive way and another one is a proactive way. Here's passive. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim have stumbled, uh, shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. That is, they're sinners. Now, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord. 
So they're going to know their sin. They're like, ah, oh, yeah, I know, I messed up. And so they're going to get all of their sin offering animals and herds, and they're going to bring it to the place where they're supposed to sacrifice, and they're going to bring it all, and they're like, all right, I'm going to kill the lamb, and I'm going to kill the goat, and I'm going to kill the pigeons, and we'll just do all that stuff. And, and they're thinking that God will be satisfied by this, but then here's what God says, but when they come with all that stuff to seek the Lord, uh, he won't be found. He's withdrawn from them. Because God is not interested in our religious, formal kind of going through the motions. God wants our whole heart. And if you're just going to play at following God, then God's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. And he withdraws. And this is the discipline of the Lord, where he just passively says, I'm not going to answer their prayers. It's kind of what we see in Isaiah 59. The people are experiencing the judgment of God and they're praying to God and they're offering sacrifices to God. You can read about that in verse 58, or chapter 58. And they're like, man, where is God? He's not answering our prayers. He's not coming through for us. And they're questioning, is God like actually weaker than we thought? Does he like not care? Behold, oh, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. Or his ear dull that he cannot hear? No, 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 no. It's your iniquities that have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. No, 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 no. God's not weak. God's not unattentive. God is very much hearing what's going on, seeing what's going on, but God's not doing anything about it because he knows what you really love is not him but all the stuff he gives you. So he's like, all right, if you don't want me, that's cool. I'll just withdraw, and I'll separate myself from you. And then all of a sudden, trouble hits, and they're like, God, where are you? And he says, what do you mean? You didn't want me, so I'm giving you exactly what you want. So that's God's passive judgment. Verse 4, they can't return to God because their deeds are so wicked. Verse 6, even when they do try to return to God with all of their deeds, God says, I'm not going to be there. And so now we turn to God's proactive discipline. And I'm not going to read all of this because there's a lot here going on, but what I'm going to do is isolate a couple verses that show you God's proactive discipline, things God is going to do. Verse 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. That is to say, people who move the goalposts. You, know, you and I know what we're talking about. Like all of our uh, political leaders and people about mask wearing and reopening, they're like, if we just do this, we'll be able to, nah, now it's this. No, 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 it's this. No, no, wait, we gotta reach this. And you're like, dude, what's up? Which is it? Make, make a decision. So it's that kind of thing where you're like, I don't know what to do. You just keep moving stuff. Now, these people are doing that. They're not being honest. They're kind of being deceptive. And so he says, upon these princes of Judah who are being deceptive and unjust, he says, I'm going to pour out my wrath like water. Uh-oh. And then in verse 11, he says, Ephraim is oppressed, right? Because they have the wrath of God poured out, and they're like, oh, no, we're in pain. And God says, yep, because my judgment is crushing you. This isn't happening to you. This is happening because of you. You're not a victim here. 
in God's judgment, God is saying, no, 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 I'm judging you because you were determined to go after filth. And so I'm judging you. And then God shows a slow and nearly invisible devouring and corrosiveness in his judgment, verse 12. I am like a moth to Ephraim. I don't know if you've ever had clothing eaten by moths, but it's weird. You don't even know where they come from. You don't see them flying around your room, and all of a sudden you put on a shirt, and you're like, yeah, I look good, and you're like, oh, no, I can see my stomach. How'd this hole get here? And God said, I'm going to be like that to you. You're not going to see me at work, but all of a sudden you're going to try to do something, and you're going to realize, oh, oh. And he says, I'm going to be like dry rot to the house of Judah. Anyone who's ever bought a house knows that you have to get a, an inspection. And inevitably, they always find the 98 things wrong with your house, right? And they're like, don't buy this a piece of junk. And you're like, what? And they find dry rot, which is moisture gets in, and it drips and drips and drips for years. And then pretty soon, they're like, hey, your roof's going to cave in and kill you all. You shouldn't buy this house. And they're like, oh, geez. So God says, I'm going to be like that to you. Drip, drip, drip. And then he says in verse 14, I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. Just imagine a lion in the Sahara, in not Sahara, savannas of Africa, sitting in a field watching you and hunting you. <laughs> like, mm -mm, no thanks. But then all of a sudden, you think you're safe. You get in a car and you drive away, and now you get out and you're walking around on your little, you know, adventure. And next thing you know, you feel excruciating pain in your neck. A lion has attacked you from behind, unannounced. No one saw it coming. And you're in the ground. Dust is flying, and you get dragged into the bushes, never to be seen again. God's like, yeah, I'm going to be like that. What? No one will rescue you. Holy smokes. These are God's covenant curses. Right from Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this is for all those who choose to not worship God supremely. And that's basically every one of us who is still battling sin in our lives. And then God gives us hope, verse 15. He says, I will return again to my place, which means I'm, I'm going to leave. And I'm going to leave for a determined amount of time, and that is until these people acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. God will wait for his people to acknowledge their guilt and seek his face. And once they acknowledge their guilt and seek his face, once these two requirements are satisfied, then he will return. Now, here is an interesting thing I want to oppose for you all. How does the Bible answer this question? How can a guilty person be redeemed from God's covenant curses? It's kind of a trick question. Because there's nothing a guilty person can do. And secondly, it's, the answer is actually found in the question itself, which is, first, you need to recognize that you're guilty. And in a culture like ours today, that's hard to do. 
Because a lot of people do not believe that they are guilty. I was reading a newsletter from Christian theologian and writer Russell Moore, and uh, he wrote this. This is eye-opening for me. He's he's given an assessment of our culture today. He said this. He said, in our society today, we don't deny human depravity. We take reassurance from it. We sense that everyone is really just about power and appetite. And therefore, only those who guard their power and feed their appetites will survive in this world. And so what you hear is not so much, you can't judge me, I'm a good person, as much as you hear, wait a minute, you can't judge me, you're a bad person too. And so what we have at the moment is not so much a prosperity gospel as it is a depravity gospel. All appeals to character and moral norms are met not with, uh, I'm not guilty, but instead they're met with dismissals like, oh, come on, get real. He goes on to say, people will say nobody is perfect, so how can you expect anything else? Let's not be the people who judge. I mean, after all, who's to say who's wrong? I mean, I'm no better than anyone else. And so in this way, what ends up happening in our culture is there's many people who will admit they are wrong, but they fail to admit that they are guilty. There's a difference. When you are wrong, you acknowledge, eh, I probably shouldn't have done that. And what you're trying to avoid is the consequences that come from that poor choice. When you are guilty, you not only do what I just said, ah, I shouldn't have done that, I was wrong, but you feel the effects of that choice. I feel I should not have done that. And in our culture today, not many people are allowing themselves to feel guilty because it doesn't feel good. And so we let our celebrities and our movie stars and our sports athletes beat their wives up and do all kinds of things, and then they give an apology, "Uh, I made a mistake. You made a mistake? You're guilty of heinous sin. But if you notice, they don't talk about guilt. If I've offended anyone, I apologize. What kind of apology is that? God, if you're offended by what I'm doing, I mean, I guess, whatever, I'm sorry. What? Do you you feel guilt? So the English, they have a way of saying this, and it's this phrase, uh, have you no shame? You heard this phrase before? Have you no shame? And what they mean is, do you not feel embarrassed? Do you not feel that you have done wrong? Do you not feel the effects of that choice? Have you no shame? And in our culture today, we have no shame. But in order to escape God's covenant curses, we have to first acknowledge our guilt, not just, eh, yeah, I've done some wrong stuff, my bad. But I mean, what do you expect? Everyone does wrong. Instead, we have to acknowledge our guilt. I am deeply ashamed that I have behaved in this way, said this thing, thought this way. I feel it. And if we don't feel it, it's probably indicator that our heart is more wicked than we'd like to admit. It's kind of like when the parents, when their kids do something, you're like, say sorry to your brother. Sorry. Say it like you mean it. In other words, what we're saying is, child, have you no shame? Do you not feel Sorry for the way you hit your brother in the face? And if they say no, you're like, oh, oh, 
we got a psychopath in our hands. And so David, real quickly, David gives us a kind of blueprint or model of what it looks like when somebody has shame, when they feel guilt. Listen to the emotive words here, emotional words. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Was the last time you heard a public apology like that? And that's what God desires. That's what God demands, that we acknowledge our guilt before him. David, who wrote that, knew his guilt And he confessed it. And here's the dilemma, brothers and sisters. Verse 4, it says, our deeds do not permit us to return to God. Verse 6 says, even when you try to return to God, God won't be found. And yet in verse 15, God says, return to me. Return to you? I can't. And even if I do, you're not there. God's like, I know. So what do I do? (laughs) What do you want me to do, God? And that's exactly what Paul is trying to capture in Ephesians 2. We cannot return to God with our own deeds and our own abilities. We must throw ourselves helplessly and dependently upon God himself to rescue us. When we cannot go to God, (laughs) the Bible describes a God who comes to us. We cannot ascend to God. And so God, knowing that, descends to us. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You were dead in your trespasses. You had a spirit of whoredom living in you. You wanted nothing to do with God. You were enemies with God. And yet God came for us because of his abundant mercy and because of his steadfast love to grace us with the rescue from the curses of the covenant. And it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. You can't come to God with herds and flocks and moral whatever and riches and well-behaved children and beauty and brawn and all that kind of stuff. You come to God empty-handed. You don't come to God at all. I got nothing to offer you, Lord. And it's the gift of God in which God comes to us and says, I know you have nothing and yet I have it all. 
So it's not a result of works that you may not boast. You are my workmanship, God says. I created you anew in Christ Jesus for good works, not because of your good works. And I created these good works for you beforehand that you should walk in them. We were dead in our sins. We could not return to God, and so God made his way to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became a human being. That is, God became flesh and dwelt among us because he knew that no works, no deeds could ever get us to where we want to be, which is with God, fully satisfied in him, and by his sheer mercy and grace, God, fueled by his great love for us, came to us. In our lowliness, in our nothingness, and he's exalted us and raised us up, and we now sit by faith in the heavenly places with God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our King. Now, our world will dismiss this as foolishness, but we see it as glory. God has come to our rescue so that the guilty can be forgiven. The guilty can be rescued. Those plagued by shame can be set free from the chains and bondage of self-guilt and judgment and all kinds of stuff. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is we Christians, of all people on planet Earth, we Christians should be the ones who never deflect or dismiss sin. We should be the ones instead who recognize that everything about us as human beings is tainted by sin, and because of that, we need God desperately. And we should be the ones who confess sins first. We should be the ones who actively repent of our sins. We should be the ones who ask for forgiveness both from God and from each other because we know the destructive and corrosive and damaging effects of sin, and we don't want anything to do with it. We as Christians should be the ones who never justify our sins by saying something like this. Well, yeah, I've sinned, but I mean, look at that guy over there. Or, yeah, I stole from the company, but come on, we're all sinners. Or, yeah, I lied about that, but come on, who hasn't lied? May it never be. May we be the kind of people who understand that God has come to rescue us. God has come to cleanse us of our sin. God has come to forgive us of our guilt. God has come to free us from our shame. God has come to empower us to walk in newness of life, to be men and women who are committed to good works for God's glory, for our joy, for the good of his neighbors. And that is what God has always planned to do. And so, brothers and sisters, don't play games with sin It's destroying you even if you don't think it is. And one day you'll finally get to the point where you'll see, oh my goodness, it really does destroy me. And you don't want to go there. So before it's too late, get the dry rot out. Repent of your sin and be made new in Christ. Be forgiven of the guilt. Let your shame be released because Jesus has come. What's amazing about Jesus' coming is that it was something predicted so long ago that God was going to do and unleash upon his people. Just listen to these words from Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. All the idols, brothers and sisters, that are tearing your life apart, that are promising and writing checks that they can't cash. 
God says, I, my people, I will give them one heart. I will give them a new spirit. I'm going to get rid of the old spirit of whoredom, and I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh where they don't feel their guilt and they don't feel the shame they ought to. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh so that they can walk in my statutes, keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey my rules. When is this going to happen? It's going to happen when God does this, when his servant David reigns as king over his people They all shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in the rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And who is this David? Remember, Ezekiel is written 500 years after David's dead. It's the descendant of David. It's the king of kings. It's the good shepherd. It's the one who lays down his life for his sheep. It's the one and only Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes, and he already has come, brothers and sisters... By his life, he has secured for all time the righteousness that you and I need that we don't currently have. And by his death, he atoned for our sins and he has absolved all of our guilt and we are now forgiven of our sins and God remembers our sins no more. And by his resurrection, he secured for all time all of the saving benefits that his life and death achieved. And now he rules as king. He rules as our shepherd and he says, follow me. And one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Galatians 3, and I'm just going to focus on verse 13, that the law, if you don't obey it, means you are cursed, and the covenant curses are coming for everyone who has sinned. But, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Because Jesus hung lifeless and naked on a cross, you and I never have to face the curse of God. The curse of the covenant's coming for those who are guilty, but those who have their guilt taken away and their shame taken away and their sin forgiven, you have a bloody Jesus to thank for it because he became for you the curse so that now God will bypass and instead he will give you the covenant blessing. Maybe not all in this life, but absolutely in the life to come. And so the call is this, repent. Acknowledge your sin before the Lord. Seek his face. Believe in the Lord Jesus, who has redeemed you, guilty sinners, from the curse of the law by becoming your substitutionary sacrifice. And now, where it says we can't return to the Lord, we can. And where it says God will not be found, he will be found. And now we can go into God's presence where our infinite joy is to be had. So I commend you, come to God in Christ. Do it today. Father, I pray as we close our service and we hear about this throne of grace that we guilty sinners, we come to you and as we acknowledge our guilt and we confess to you our sin that you are faithful to forgive us, you will indeed As we've already sung, you will make us white as snow. By the blood of Jesus, you cleanse us of our unrighteousness. And God, as we've already sung, we find Jesus so much better than anything else. And I pray now as we close this service, put it into our hearts, the kind of emotion we ought to have in light of these glorious truths. God, our sin is no more. 
we have a priest who intercedes for us, who mediates for us, who has forgiven us and by his blood cleanses us and we go free. And I pray, Lord, that those who are here knowing their guilt and shame, who want to be rid of it and free, I pray they put their faith in you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. Oh, what glorious grace it is. What glorious grace it is. It's in your name we pray.